In A Testament of Hope, Martin Luther King Jr. said, It may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Welcome to the Tweets and Tonic Podcast. I'm your host, Mandy Asbury. Political hot topics are intertwined in every aspect of our lives, from your streaming channels to your favorite sports teams and even in your pulpits. If you are looking for a cultural commentary on those infamous 280 characters brought to you by the Little Blue Bird, pour yourself a drink because this is the podcast for you. The way our show works is that we will take 10 tweets and break them down and share our thoughts and opinions. Back by popular demand, today's guest on this episode of Tweets and Tonic is the Aaron Asbury. Aaron is my husband, my son's father, my sociable introvert, my INFJ, my Enneagram 3 Wing 2, my best friend, an all-around good guy. Welcome back to the show, babe. Thank you for having me. And I'm okay. Just okay. <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time to drop some of your wisdom on us today. And are you ready? Oh, I'm always ready. Ready. Okay. Here we go. At number 10, the Daily Beast tweeted, The 14-year-old teen is being charged with two counts of committing a hate crime and one count of disorderly conduct. So, in the Chicagoland area, a 14-year-old white student at Central High School in Naperville, Illinois, allegedly posted a photo of a black classmate with the caption, Slave for Sale, along with other offensive language on Craigslist. The boy, whose identity has not been revealed due to being a juvenile, has been charged with these counts, and his attorney has described the client, his client and the victim as Friends. That's not the kind of friend I like to have. Not at all. First of all, I think the thing that's interesting about this, this comes after the whole fiasco with Buffalo Wild Wings, mm-hmm. where a in the same area where a family, uh, a multi-ethnic family, was asked to leave because a couple white patrons, um, did not feel comfortable sitting next to them. First, they were asked to sit in a different area away from the couple, and then they were asked to leave when they didn't want to move to a different area. And I just have to question, what's in the water? What's in the water there? (laughs) Well, it's so weird having moved here from the South. You would think that it'd be a little less racist up here due to the reputation that we have in the South, but I don't know. No, I'm not I, sure. I think the South is openly racist, whereas <laughs> the North is hidden, <laughs> you know? I guess. And, and on this, first of all, I would question his parents. Yeah. Where did he learn this behavior? and Where did he learn that this was okay? I would also actually like to ask the student that this picture was posted of, like, are you friends? And why does he think this is okay? Has he done anything like this before? Has he said anything like this before? You know? Yeah. And I wonder too, 
like, there's no excuse for this behavior, but like, have they had a conversation? Like, have they talked about what happened? And the reason I ask that is because they need to talk it out because he needs to understand why this isn't okay. Yeah. Why this is bad. Not to mention him posting this other person's picture on Craigslist is one of the most dangerous things you can do. Well, and I'm not trying to, you know, discredit the situation, but I didn't know people still use Craigslist. No, they just removed the uh, the ads soliciting mm. certain favors. Mm. But no, it's still gotcha. okay. still well in, well in a lot. <laughs> okay, well, um, all I can really say is do better, Naperville. Do better. Um, What's in the water? I mean... That's why I drink LaCroix. <laughs> That's why I just, I can't risk it. Isn't it like two like points off of being like pesticide or something? If I remember correctly. Nobody asked you about that. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, we're going to switch gears completely here. And at number nine, the New York Comic Con tweeted a picture of Kylo Ren and baby Yoda. And it says... The spinoff we are all waiting for, hashtag Ben Solo, hashtag Baby Yoda. So, if you don't know who Baby Yoda is, you are sincerely missing out in life. Uh, the Mandalorian came out recently on Disney+. Plus. It is set after the fall of the Empire, before the emergence of the First Order. And if you are completely confused right now, we're talking about Star Wars. And I, too, would have been very confused about this, but last weekend... We did a marathon, and I'm completely caught up. I'm exhausted. And I'm now in love. Wait, wait, not completely caught up. Well, of of the important ones. We didn't watch episode one through three. But this uh, show follows the travails of a lone gunfighter in the outer reaches of the galaxy, far from the authority of the New Republic. So you probably know who Yoda is, even if you haven't seen Star Wars, but in the new Mandalorian, there's a little baby Yoda. Wait, spoilers. You just can't say that. Oh, okay. My bad. My bad. Um, He's so cute, though. I have to. He's a little Yodette. I've asked for this for Christmas, and I can't wait to unwrap him. She's not getting it. Um, First of all, let's touch on the fact that we couldn't watch episode. So we're going to watch episode one through three. We watched the first three. The original three first. Then we're going to watch episodes one through three. After watching Jar Jar Binks for about 20 minutes. Yep, most. Uh, Nandy said, this is rough. This seems very racist. I can't watch this. <laughs> there was not enough red wine in my box of Franzia for that. Um, but are the people really wanting a Ben Solo movie here? And you are the resident... Star Wars expert here at the Asbury House. Oh, at the Asbury House. It's like, no. <laughs> Nobody's looking for Ben Solo. Nobody likes Kylo Ren. Like, <laughs> come on, man. He, he Spoilers if you haven't seen The Force Awakens. He killed Han Solo. He's dead to us all. That was a to dramatic. all of us. Dramatic spoiler. Um, well, I'm fine with an entire movie of Baby Yoda, so that works for me. Oh, he's so, I will, well, you know what? Let's not call it Yoda. We don't know if it's a girl or a boy yet. And also, I would like to say, it is cute. It isn't real, and you're not getting an Ewok. Just saying, nobody, Ewoks aren't real. Nobody likes you. I'll dress Ozzy up as an Ewok, if okay. that's what you want. Um, moving Ozzy's on. Ozzy's our dog. 
we are going to completely switch gears again. Keep you on your toes today. Um, shout out to my former roommate, Jereen. This topic is for you. We're going to talk about Andrew Yang, a candidate for president on the Democratic side. Um, Nick Gillespie, who's an editor at large for Reason Magazine, tweeted, <clears throat> sounds great, doesn't it? Quote, I will create a department of the attention economy that focuses on smartphones, social media, gaming, and apps, and how to responsibly design and use them, including age restrictions and guidelines. So, like I mentioned, Andrew Yang is a candidate for president, and he has released his, what he's calling his tech policy. And he was quoted in his policy as saying that technology has also outpaced our government's understanding of it and regulations are falling short of protecting us from big tech companies that are prioritizing profits over our well-being. The growth of this industry over the past couple of decades to create trillion-dollar tech companies in a framework, framework of self-regulation. Aaron, you're a bit of a tech nerd. Uh, a little bit. So... What are your thoughts on this policy so far? And we're going to go over kind of the four-pronged approach he's brought. But just from the onset, what are your thoughts? Okay. Who will decide these restrictions? Because you can tell from watching uh, Zuckerberg talk to Congress, they know nothing about technology. And it kind of frightens me if those people, I said those people, I apologize, those congressmen and women get to decide the restrictions placed on video games and social media. Um, how are you going to enforce these restrictions? And and will those tech companies be involved in the decision of those rules? And the reason I ask this is because, so let's look at Facebook. It is a service provided for free. You don't have to have Facebook. It's not a personal right. It's not, you know, like it's a privilege or a, a service you choose. So, like, it's kind of a thing of where does personal responsibility come in? Because you can just not use Facebook. If you don't like their policies, you don't like what they're doing, you can just not use it. But at the same time, Facebook needs to be very transparent about what they're doing. Well, I think it's like all policies, especially during campaign season, they sound really good. I mean, clearly that's why they say them, because that's what helps them get elected. This policy, um, like I said, is a four-pronged approach. Number one is they want to regulate the use of data and privacy by establishing data as a property right. And he's really been hitting a lot about this on social media and in his stumps that, um, you know, our data is being sold constantly. We should have control of that. Um, number two was to minimize health impacts of modern tech on our people, particularly our children, which is this department of the attention economy that he wants to create. Um, and then number three is to stop the spread of misinformation that is eroding trust in our institutions and planning the, fanning the flames of polarization in our society. So he wants to set up some kind of VAT on digital ads to drive businesses away from the ad-driven business model and have disclosures on all these ads and regulate bot activity and algorithms so that's an interesting concept. And then the fourth prong is to adopt a 21st century approach to regulation that increases the knowledge and capacity of government while using new metrics to determine competitiveness and quickly identifies it, 
identifies emerging tech in need of regulation. So here's the thing. Um, this actually does not sound appealing to me. Um, I am part of this 50% that he claims of U.S. adults that favor more regulation on tech firms. Um, but this isn't the regulation I'm looking for. And I also think it's a slippery slope. Uh, the Democrats tend to like to put these stipulations on all these different entities, whether it's technology or hospitals, or they want more policy, more control, more regulation. And like you said, where does personal responsibility come in? Let me think for myself. Let me do for myself what I feel is right. And I don't need you to tell me what that is. So let's start from the last policy and go up. Okay. What was the last policy again? Adopt a 21st century approach to regulation, increasing the knowledge and capacity of the government. Good luck. <laughs> That's all I can say about that one. Oh, yeah. Good luck. Um, some people just don't want to know anything about technology. And like, again, that's the thing of personal responsibility as a congressperson, you should be checking on technology, uh, constantly to try to figure out the way the world is changing in the way. So you can make policies and things of that nature, but nobody in Congress is doing it at this point besides Andrew Yang evidently. So, yeah. Well, and here's the thing. Um, you're asking for the government to increase their knowledge. They can't even figure out Facebook. And if we keep electing people like Nancy Pelosi, who have been in office longer than we've been alive, I'm not quite sure we're going to be able to keep up with these new emerging technologies. Um, that's kind of ageism. I feel like anybody can learn it. The <laughs> thing is, do they want to learn it? So what was the one before that? Stop the spread of misinformation that is eroding trust in our institutions. This, I, to me, is the one where I'm like, sweet Lord, we do not need you trying to, we don't need the government trying to stop the spread of misinformation. And my question is, who's the purveyor of truth? Right. Because the thing is, it's kind of like with TV. You can watch three different channels and get three different stories that all are stemming from the same situation. Um, so... He he's right in one sense. We really don't have a central hub of truth where we get information and can know 100% it's unbiased and it is actually 100% true and based on factual evidence. Like I didn't you, know we were going to get into absolute truth tonight. Well, I'm just I saying, haven't even had any wine. I don't, I'm not even ready. <laughs> and two, the data property thing. So that one's a little strange to me. In in. I would like to ask him questions. I'm not saying that it's bad or wrong because I feel our data is our property. But at the same time, you're back to the example of Facebook. Your data is being stored on their servers. They're giving you the ability to curate that data because they provide you with the platform to do it. So partially, like partially, partial ownership of that data kind of kind of goes to Facebook. Yes, it's your life, but you're placing it on everything they own, and they're giving you the ability to display that. Like, so they have some right. Now, can they sell that data to other people? Probably not. Um, so let's talk about companies that you buy products from. They use your products to decide the, their sales cycles, what they'll create, what they'll do, how they'll increase production. 
is that data? Should you get a kickback from the data they used when you purchase something from them? Might I add, sell, uh, Facebook, Salesforce, I work at Salesforce, so Facebook is a free service. Again, you don't have to use it. But the whole data property thing is kind of cloudy to me because there's so many ways to accumulate people's data without even using a service that they log into. You purchase something, your data is there. You surf the internet, your data is there. Like, and I think we have this grandiose view of how much our data is worth. Like, your data alone is worth nothing, maybe a cent or two. It's when you accumulate all this data, analyze it, and use that to drive things that it's important. So that payoff, what would that look like? Would it be split amongst everybody? Or would it be, you know, just them providing you a free service? Or something extra. Like what Sounds does it look to me like? like you're judging my data. No, no, no. Like you don't you don't think my data is worth anything. I think it is. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's a slippery slope when you start talking about things like that. Also, what happens when we talk about sites whose servers are across or overseas? Like how will you enforce that? How will you be able to, you know, actually Analyze, calculate, and, you know, take note of where data's going, how it's getting there, and who needs to pay what. It's fine. Donald Trump can work with these countries for a little quid pro quo and get what he wants from them. We're fine. I mean, the only way you would be able to do it, Donald Trump could do it. Uh, The only way you'd be able to do it is if you create some super AI that actually monitors all of this. And then we start getting into Terminator 2, Skynet territory. Oh, Lord. I'm going to have to rein you in now and move on to hey, number seven. Elon Musk is worried for a reason. That's all I'm saying. So at number seven, CNN tweeted an article about Kanye West. Uh, I'm not sure we can have an episode of Tweets and Tonic and not mention Kanye to some degree. But ooh, ooh. Kanye West left inmates in tears when he performed a surprise concert at the Harris County Jail in Houston, Texas. And... Past weekend, Kanye appeared at Lakewood Church, which is Joel Osteen's business, I mean church. Um, sorry, slip of the Freudian slip there. Um, I did see a meme this week that I totally appreciated that that congregation actually got to hear more about Jesus than they probably ever had with Kanye on the stage. But, um, <clears throat> man, sorry. Um, Kanye performed, I think I actually heard in two prisons, but one was the most publicized uh, in Texas this weekend. And I saw several comments from different uh, prisoners saying it was like the most spiritual experience they'd ever had. And I did watch part of Sunday service on YouTube. Apparently, anytime they have a Sunday service, you can watch it live on YouTube. But um, it's amazing. That choir, it's mind-blowing. But Kanye got a lot of criticism because on the stage at Osteen's church, he talked about how Jesus had changed his life and he had won the victory because now the greatest musician of all time is on Jesus's team talking about himself. So <laughs> about the comment about the greatest musician, musician of all time, say what you want about Kanye, the man's a genius. That's not up for debate. The question is, was he wrong in saying that? And I think a lot of people take that incorrectly. I think what he's saying is somebody who has the ego he has was led to the Lord. 
that's a big statement. Because let's be real. I love Kanye to death, but he has a humongous ego. And even he says Jesus is king. You know? And to the prisoners, it's kind of like what we talked about in our episode. If you haven't heard that episode, you should go back and listen to it. Um, (laughs) Shameless self-promotion. Shameless self-promotion. Kanye will have the ability to bring people to Jesus that other churches, congregations, people have looked over. Because Kanye, when he does this, you can tell he's genuine in the message he's saying. He doesn't look at people as lesser. And sometimes as Christians, we fall into that pathway of looking at somebody we deem a sinner as less than us. And he's not doing that. He's just going. He's giving them a message about God without looking at them as lesser. He's just genuinely wanting to tell everybody regardless of who you are. And, you know, that's beautiful. So speaking of the prison system, specifically actually in Texas, uh, Bernie Sanders tweeted this week, this decision by the parole board is critically important. Rodney Reed's execution should not just be delayed, but canceled. Real criminal justice reform must include joining every other major democracy in eliminating the death penalty. So this Past week, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals issued a stay of Rodney Reed's execution. The decision came after a long deliberation where the Texas Board of Pardons and Parole asked Republican Governor Greg Abbott for a 120-day delay to this execution um, because his lawyer said there was new evidence that would exonerate him. Uh, The court cited concealed information false testimony, possible innocence in this last-minute decision to stay his sentence. And this development actually outweighs the parole board's recommendation removing Abbott completely from the equation because it's stayed indefinitely, not even just for 120 days. Um, There's been a lot of questions whether or not he's guilty. Um, This was a unanimous recommendation coming from that board, which is almost unheard of. And... um, there's a group called the Innocence Project that's working with Rodney Reed to try to get his case overturned. And we've had a lot of conversations about the death penalty. We've been on opposite sides of the issue. But this is another, just one more case supporting your opinion on uh, the death penalty. So what do you think about all of this happening? I think um, Bernie is right. We need to get rid of the death penalty. Um For me, I would rather keep 99 killers alive and save one innocent person than to kill one innocent person and 99 killers. And the reason I say that is the moment you start looking at situations when it comes to law and justice as acceptable losses, justice is null and void at that point because that person was murdered. And that's what the law is there to protect us from, is it not? I mean, it is. This has always been something that we've gone back and forth on in conversation. Um, I have always been for capital punishment. I don't want to call it the death penalty, but for capital punishment. Um, not saying I'm stuck in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, but maybe a hashtag little. Um, I, I just always put myself in other people's situations as the victims. 
And I guess that's probably my mentality maybe on some things. And so I struggle because if it were my child or my husband, that'd be you, or my mom or, you know, even my best friends or anyone like that that was murdered or raped and murdered or, you know, any of these things, these horrendous crimes, I would have a hard time not wanting, you know, eye for an eye almost. I want to put somebody through what they put my people through, which is not right, but it's human and I'm just being honest. And Definitely ain't Christ-like. <laughs> well, all right, Judgey McGee. No, no, no. Uh, that was a Kanye verse. <laughs> uh, so I, I do struggle with that. But then I think, too, what if it's your loved one that's innocent but being held unjustly? And I think that there are obviously cases of that that we're seeing over and over and over again. And actually the the Do Good Company we're going to highlight today is working with a lot of people like that. And so I know that that's prevalent. And so I just struggle. And I actually struggle because of what you said. You would rather save one innocent man than kill the innocent man for all the other 99. And I struggle with that. Well, so this is my point. We have a legal system that we know is skewed, especially towards people of color. People get railroaded every day into crimes that they didn't even commit. How can you be okay with the death penalty in a system that is so flawed? Because think about this. Even with the modern day techniques, you can't say 100% whether somebody committed a crime. Yeah. Not even taking it on a level of color. There was a young man who was accused of assaulting his ex-girlfriend. He was actually someplace else, but could not remember where he was. She said he was the one that assaulted her and basically cut an X on her face with a box cutter. He was going to go to jail for 20 years until his mom pulled up a picture from his Instagram with a timestamp showing where he was at that time. Yeah, you know, I... um. I love podcasts and I do listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. Um, My friend Joey and I talk about them all the time, (laughs) really break down these cases. And I mean, you're right. There was one we listened to recently. It was called 13 Alibis. And this man was in jail for life. And he literally had 13 people who could vouch for him in this alibi. Like people that barely even knew him. One guy that didn't even know him, but could still vouch for him. So There's that, but then there's also cases like one that we've listened to called Culpable about a young man, Christian Andriacchio in Mississippi, who was murdered. And if you want to know who did it, it was definitely his girlfriend and her friend. Well, we don't know that. Well. I'm not trying to get a lawsuit. I'm just saying. Um, And nobody's ever been held accountable for it. And our justice system is so jacked up. It goes back to... What was it? The way our system was set up does not work for today's society. But what kind of reform is really going to fix the situation? Honestly, I don't know if you can reform a system so broken. You know, but this is the next thing I'll go into. We're all okay with the death penalty until it's our loved one who is falsely accused. So my thing is, if you don't want your. okay, let's put it this way. You can't be okay with the death penalty and okay with acceptable losses. And then when the moment it hits you and you're falsely accused, you're like, wait, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. And again, the justice system is there to protect us, but it doesn't seem to be doing that, especially with the death penalty. When we know there are a multitude of cases where people have been falsely accused, 
and falsely arrested for things. You cannot, that is not justice. You're looking, you're looking for punishment, regardless of whether the person did it or not, not justice. And that isn't Christ-like, you know? Right. All right. Kanye, um, shout out. <laughs> speaking of just what would be an injustice, um, Kamau Bell tweeted this week, and if you don't know who that is, he's a socio-political comedian. He's the host and executive producer of a crazy award-winning CNN docuseries, United Shades of America. Um, he's got a Netflix special. You should check out his work. He tweeted, so, wait, was the exec expecting Julia Roberts to go full-on blackface like Birth of a Nation or just completely ignore the source material like Emma Stone in Aloha? I have questions. So, Gregory Allen Howard is the screenwriter and producer of the new historical drama Harriet, which is based on Harriet Tubman's life. Um, it released earlier this month, and it's starring Cynthia Rico. Um, but Howard said that when he first started working on this movie back in 1994, which, that's another crazy thing, 1994, and we're just now getting it in 2019, but he said that one of the studio executives suggested that Julia Roberts, yes, Julia Roberts, like Still Magnolias, Aaron Brockovich, Pretty Woman, that Julia Roberts, should portray the legendary slave-turned-abolitionist. He recalled how the climate in Hollywood was very different 25 years ago. And he said, you know, when the studio execs read the script, they said, it's fantastic. We should get Julia Roberts to play Harriet Tubman. And when somebody actually pointed out to this person that Roberts could not play Harriet Tubman, the executive responded, it was so long ago, no one is going to know the difference. <sighs> so, I where would you like to begin with this one? First of all, if you don't know what Birth of a, of a Nation is, it was a propaganda film released way, way, way back when that basically showed um, black Union soldiers raping and pillaging in a southern um, plantation after the war was won or something like that. It's it's really, really horrendous. Really horrible. Um, so, but it was all white characters in blackface jumping from chandeliers and attacking people. And they pretty much acted like animals. Um, I'm not surprised by this. I think the funny thing about it is you know, when people of color talk about how Hollywood tries to whitewash everything, you know, we get gaslit and told, oh, you're just being crazy. It's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. And then a story like this comes out and it's like, <laughs> see? You know? I'm super curious to see if she will even comment uh, because she may not even want to touch this nonsense. But I'll be interested to see if Julia Roberts says anything. The whole blackface thing. So... <laughs> I mean, it's so crazy. Like, there are so many people who keep getting busted out for blackface. Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada. Joy Behar, sweet Lord, the queen of the feminist movement. Even she did blackface. And so for them to say, like, that's ah, not that big of a deal. But today, we, like, judge and jury hang these people for I doing I don't think you say hang. Hey. Oh. 
um, <laughs> for doing blackface though. And but this is not a big deal, I guess, maybe because it's Julie Roberts or because it's a big film or no, because this. Okay, first of all, the blatant disregard for history is 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 just crazy. But I mean, the executive was thinking about the way they can make the most money. You know, and what markets they're trying to appeal to. Evidently, it's not a black market. And this shows that Hollywood, and all I can do is speak for about past Hollywood, had major issues. And Hollywood of today still probably has those issues. But this basically highlights the, the issue. Like, certain markets they feel will only be, honestly, people who are not of color should be angry. Because they don't think you will accept any movie that doesn't have a white protagonist. And what is it? Black Panther? Uh, what's the other one? I cannot hear the words Black Panther correctly in my head anymore because our three-year-old is obsessed and he says Black Panther. So that's all I hear now. When he <laughs> well, two questions I had about this. Harriet Tubman is one of the most prolific people in history in this regard and it's taken since 1994 to get a movie about her like again hollywood is not trying to they're not trying to sell you anything new controversial or by all means please let's remake every show that has ever been made yes yes. but i also thought it was interesting that the executive pointed out back in 94 it was so long ago no one is going to know the difference first of all what is America telling Hollywood that they think we really are that ignorant? But also, is he right? Well. I say he could be a she. They haven't clarified. Is it is the executive right? And in all honesty, I think he looks at, or he or she looks at the fact that history has been whitewashed even in schools. They don't talk about, they don't really talk about slavery and the plight of people of color during that time. They kind of glance over it. So if you're not really going in depth, then of course who would know? Who would know? Like how many people honestly, and leave comments, how many of you know about the Birth of a Nation movie? Yeah. I mean, speaking of something kind of along, well, just moving on to number four. I'll leave that alone. Um, Maria Shriver, who was... Um, Obviously, a member of the Kennedy family, a well-known journalist, um, the former first lady of California, tweeted this week, I was sitting next to some guys watching this in a store. I'm fascinated to see how this plays out. I hope one of these owners gives this young man a chance. Hashtag Kaepernick. And she linked to the video of Cap giving his statement after his pseudo workout in Atlanta this past weekend. The NFL had set up a tryout for or workout for cap in Atlanta at the Falcon stadium. They had media there. They had professional filmography people. They had star receivers to work out with them. They had set up this entire thing, invited all 32 teams. Cap was on board. He claims it's what he's been asking for for three years. And then they asked him to sign a waiver that he's not going to hold them liable if he gets hurt, you know, someone that's prone to have knee injuries like he is. So he bailed 30 minutes before the workout, drove to a high school outside of Atlanta with handpicked 
press representatives and handpicked team representatives. Did a 40-minute workout. Still has an arm and still has no contract for the NFL. What do you think about what happened? I have some strong feelings, but I'm going to let you go first. I'm kind of torn because if he is – look, he it's not if. He's a football player. Your body is your biggest asset. So I can understand his problem with having to sign a waiver that if he gets hurt, they're not held liable. I can understand that from, from a certain perspective. Because if he was on the actual team, would he get any – I'm asking you this. Would he get any kind of – if he hurt himself, would he get any kind of, you know, payment? Um, well, I mean, the thing about these athletes today, they all take out insurance policies on their bodies. Yeah. And it's not like your typical life insurance policy. These are policies on if you blow out your knee or your arm or what have you, and, which he has done. And – um you know, if a kid goes to the combine this spring to try out, basically, to be in the NFL, he signs the same waiver. I, this not, is just a part of the process. And I'm not questioning whether everybody does it. I'm saying, is it good that everybody does that? Is my question. Should should the NFL, because if you're a college player that comes in, you don't have money to sign to do a insurance policy, correct? In theory, that's the next tweet, but we'll get there. <laughs> you don't have the money to do an insurance policy. So I think it's kind of crazy to ask somebody who has already put their body on the line throughout their college career to further put their body on the line and possibly get hurt and then not get a deal when they've worked their whole life to get to this point. <clears throat> I mean, I can see your perspective on that. Um, but here's what I'll say. Here's my two cents. I do not think Colin Kaepernick wants to play in the NFL. I do not think he wants a team to sign him. I think he wanted the press conference. I think he wanted the moment in the spotlight. And that's what he got. And, you know, he ended the workout with an interview on TV, which is what Maria Shriver is referencing, and said he's been waiting for three years, and he'll be waiting on the NFL to call. They already called, Colin. That's what you were doing in Atlanta. And it goes back to Cap could have kept playing in 2016, but he did not want to be a backup quarterback. Here's the thing. Not everybody's a starting quarterback in the NFL. And he didn't want to be a backup, so he got out of his contract, and now nobody else will sign him, and he wants to act like that's only solely because he knelt during the National Anthem. Are there some teams that are not signing him because of that? Maybe. But are there a lot of teams that are not signing him because they already have quarterbacks? Yes. Well, and the question is, the question is then, the quarterbacks they already have, and I'm going to give you the spotlight after I ask this question, the quarterbacks that they already have, are they as good as Cap? I thought about this today. Of the 32 starting quarterbacks in the NFL, there is not one that I, if I was an NFL owner, would replace today with Cap. 2016, yes, there were several I would have replaced with him. But not today. You're three years out of the game. And you're coming off of a horrific knee injury. Baker Mayfield, I can't stand the dude. Jameis Winston, can't stand the dude. Kyler Murray's so little. 
I mean, there are so many examples. The Broncos, Joe Flacco, Brandon Allen, Lord help us all. There's tons of people who are subpar quarterbacks, but they've been playing. He has not been playing in the speed of game for three years. I just, I don't see it. Why would they? And I tell you what, if somebody does sign him, which I still every year think somebody will, it's all for the media. We're looking at you, the Philadelphia Eagles. I guarantee you, if anybody's going to sign him, it's going to be them. You know, the funny thing about that is, and the reason I say I'm torn, because for me, if I want something bad enough, I'll do what I have to do. But then I ask the question, is it fair to ask him to sign that kind of waiver? Then also I come to to the, you know, my thoughts are, would you really replace a quarterback that knows your system, has been built a chemistry up with your players, and has done this for a year or two for someone completely new who is, how old is he now? I don't know. I mean, and I will hate on Tom Brady. All day, every day. But I cannot say that he's the only person I know that old that can still play to that level. Like, Well, you said something interesting just then. You said, is that fair? I think that there are a lot of college football players who did not get drafted, who did not get a free agency deal, who would give up everything for 10 minutes with an executive from an NFL team. Just one. This dude gets invited out of the thin blue air after three years of not playing, full of drama and controversy, and has the invite sent to 32 executives. And then bails on the ones who actually showed up. And he's waiting on the NFL to call. What the heck is he waiting on? It goes back to the sense of entitlement and arrogance that he showed in 2016 when he would not be a backup quarterback. And just to let you know, you know, in case people try to come at this from a race perspective, this does... He could be purple. I don't care what color he is. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I just have, I have a lot of questions, not about him and his situation, but more about practices as a whole. You know, like to me, well, again, if I wanted it bad enough, I'd do what I have to do. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned something, though, that there are some college athletes who could not afford the insurance policy, which leads us to number three. Andrew Cicillano, um tweeted, James Wiseman has to pay to play now, question mark. James Wiseman is a number one um, player, college basketball player in the country, probably the number one draft pick. Uh, he signed with Memphis and – he has been suspended. Um, his punishment stems from two violations. His mom accepted $11,500 from Penny Hardaway. Um, yes, that Penny Hardaway from the Orlando Magic Days. Um, in the summer of 2017. Um, and his other violation is he played in three games this season while he was ineligible. So the investigation found documentation that Penny paid the Wiseman family in 2017 to help with their move from Nashville to Memphis. Now, at the time, Penny was not the coach of the Memphis Tigers. He was a head coach at East High School in Tennessee, and he ran a program called the Team Penny Grassroots. And Wiseman played for Team Penny, this AAA team, and he enrolled at East High School. 
The problem is not anything that I have just said. <laughs> the problem is that Penny Hardaway is a Memphis alum and was considered a booster at the time due to a $1 million donation he gave to the school back in 2008 to build a sports hall of fame. NCAA is very clear that boosters cannot give money to players. So this is seen as a violation of that. He was ruled ineligible earlier this month, but a Shelby County judge in Memphis issued a restraining order allowing him to play. He went on and played two more games. Then Memphis decided to go ahead and declare him ineligible and to withhold him from the competition. And at first he was going to sue the NCAA, but now he's decided not to do that. But here's the kicker. So he suspended 11 games. And he has now been ordered to pay $11,500 to a nonprofit of his choice before he can play. Where, where is a college kid going to get $11,500 legally and ethically in the eyes of the NCAA? It feels like this is a thing of control. Because if his family had to get $11,000 to move, where do you think he's going to get that money from? To me, personally, let's let's exclude all the regulations and whatever else. Was he even in college when that payment happened? Nope, high school. Like, he didn't, and from what I read in the article, he didn't even know that his family got the payment. No, I mean, and of course people say, oh, sure he didn't know, but... You're also talking about a high school kid. If his mom wanted to do it, his mom was going to do it. Exactly. It didn't go to him. It went to his mother. And I can say for a fact that he may not have known because his mother may have felt shame that she had to even ask Penny Hardaway for the money. And, you know, I mean, this all stems really from Penny being a booster of Memphis, um, having given them a million dollars. And, <laughs> I mean, it's just a tough road for Wiseman at this point. If It'll obviously hurt his season. Will it affect his NBA career? No, he will eventually. Now, will he be the number one pick? I doubt it. But what is Memphis going to get? Is Penny going to be penalized? Is the team going to be penalized? Or is this all going to fall on Wiseman, an 18-year-old kid? And where, I mean, everything about this screams violation of the NCAA rules. Like, he's paying to play now. I mean, Siskelano's right. I mean, that's what he has to pay this money to play now. I just, oh, honestly, the the organizations that run sports in college, it just seems like the most unfair situation you can ever, ever see. You're making millions, if not billions, off of these players, and you give them a college scholarship and call it good. Yeah. That's ridiculous. How many people pay $20, $30, $40, not even talking about box box seats, to see these games every week, every year. And you're equivalent about $11,000 that he didn't even get. His mother got. To me personally, you should play your pay your players. The, a lot of these kids... That's a whole other controversy. A lot of these kids come from backgrounds where they can't afford things. You put them in a situation where people will offer them money, money that they send back home to their family who is in a bad situation where they could potentially die. And then you call foul when they take it. Like, what do you expect them to do? 
my career or my family's life. Well, and it's like, you know, a few years back, there were some Mississippi State football players who were penalized because they took some money for a boost from a booster for food. Like, we're not talking about, like, and there are athletes out there who are accepting cars and homes and vacations and things like that, and they're giving a bad name and bad rep to everyone else. But there are kids that are struggling to eat that we're making money off of in these university systems. So, I mean, I... I think, again, a whole other system that needs to be completely overhauled, but I, I don't even know where you'd begin with that one either. Oh, um, just, just just fire everybody if they're current. Okay. Well, speaking of firing. Um, oh. <laughs> so, Steve Smith tweeted this week, Trump must resign the office of president of the United States. His corruption is as staggering as the incontrovertible proof of it. GOP senators must be faithful to their constitutional oaths. It's time for them to demand resignation. Duty requires it. Steve Smith is not just a nobody uh, in the political world. He is a public affairs strategist. He's worked on like 98% of Republican political campaigns. Um, He worked for President George W. Bush, Governor of California Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arizona Senator John McCain, um, and he's calling out his own people. Um, I'm not sure that Steve still considers himself a Republican, as I don't know that many people still can that worked for that uh, group of men, but um, Trump must resign. First of all, any chance you think he would resign? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I don't see that happening. Um, you go have to catch him. <laughs> but I laughable at the thought of the GOP senators demanding a resignation at this point. I've never seen that group as quiet as they've been lately. I, I think the thing that's kind of interesting to me is the talk of corruption now, this is not to excuse. If he's done a crime, obviously he should be held accountable for that. If he's committed any kind of infraction, he should be held accountable for that. And I don't, I don't, I'm not going to miss words on that. If you did something wrong, you should be punished. But I laugh to a certain extent because we talk about corruption like every other politician is squeaky clean. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. he's the only one that's corrupt. Like, yeah, I talked about, we talked about that on Tuesday with um, Laura on that episode about how the majority of these politicians have done a lot of dirt. We just didn't see it the way we see it today because of the 24 hour news cycle, social media, because Trump himself will not get off Twitter. I was going to say, is it mainly more because he's so outspoken that people are so adamant? Because if he would go quiet on Twitter, quiet. Quiet on Twitter, would they be, if he would not say things that people found to be ugly, would they be going as hard as they are to get him out of office? You know, the impeachment inquiry has gone on this week, and there's been testimony from several ambassadors, um, Jovanovich, Sondland, um, to name a few, and the lieutenant colonel that spoke yesterday, Vidman. Um, their testimonies are all very different 
but all point to one thing that this situation was not handled correctly. And I think a lot of times as Americans, we also get in this place where we want to get rid of career politicians. And I'm one of them. I'm so sick of the Nancy Pelosi's, the Chuck Schumer's, all of those people. But when you get rookies, so to speak, into a position like this, that have no clue and they're not surrounding themselves with people that can actually tell them no, this is what happens. You know, and one of the things I noticed today that frustrated me, Sondland's testimony was pretty damning to the president, but he flat out said that he was not asked in the words of Pridquo to do that. But the details around what happened led to that. So, of course, the media comes out with, he said yes. No, he didn't. He did not say. In fact, he said, no, it did not happen that way. But the media is going to spin this. And so, did the president do something wrong? Yes. Did he handle a situation very incorrectly? Yes. Is it impeachable? That's up to Congress to decide. But the media is not helping the situation. They're as big of a circus as the White House is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about Facebook. Where can you get unbiased truth? Because you're not going to get it from the media because that's they're ad revenue generating. Yeah. That's services. a question a lot of people ask me. Like, where do you get news that's nuanced and balanced? Um, honestly, I go to the BBC. Yes. <laughs> you have to go across the pond to find anybody who's remotely nuanced with our news. Um, outside of that, I don't think you can. There's some good journalists, some really good journalists and people I follow. But their publications themselves spin everything. And so I don't know who knows what will happen, but I can tell you this. I have a lot of respect for Steve Smith. I've worked with him several times. President's not going to resign. Doesn't mean you're wrong, but doesn't mean you're wrong, but <laughs> you're going to have to catch him. Um, and on that note for the BBC, one thing I will say, you can definitely tell the difference between the BBC and our news. The BBC is funded by the government, if I remember correctly, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever, like, perfect example, the Ebola outbreak. <laughs> and I know this is way back when. Every news station, I think we had, what, three, four people that contracted the disease? The, every news station, the Ebola outbreak, <laughs> it's terrifying. Making people afraid so they would continue to watch. The BBC had more people that contract. oh, not the BBC, but that area had more people that contracted the Ebola virus. And every communication was, we have this under control. We, we you know, like, yes, these people have contracted it, but we're working to fix the situation. Because the thing about Ebola is it can kill you, yes. But the thing that kills people is the dehydration from losing blood out of every single orifice of your body. Like the rating of the show is drastically changing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. Shout out to the queen. Um, queen mother. If she ever wants to come on the podcast, we're totally willing and able. Um, and the new season of the crown came out this past week. So yeah. yeah. Um, the number one tweet, and I hesitate to do this one. Um, this is from John Pavlovitz. And a lot of people follow him. He is a 
I think now former minister in North Carolina. Um, he's a writer, a blogger. He's authored three different books, A Bigger Table, Hope, and Low. Um, he has a very large platform and a lot to say. Um, before I read this tweet, I will say that I do not condone a lot of what John Pavlovitz says. He has personally criticized and demeaned somebody that I care about. And so I'm not promoting him. I am bringing up a topic. Um, he tweeted, it's impossible to be devoted to the Jesus of the scriptures while refusing refugees, expelling immigrants, demonizing Muslims, vilifying people of color, worshiping political power and neglecting the poor. And I think this is obviously a direct shot at the religious right and the Trump administration. And I can't say that I completely disagree on every point. Um, I have been very bothered by people of the religious right, like Franklin Graham, who I have a lot of respect for his father and his mother, but it feels like he's really whored himself out to the president and very vocally doing that. And I do struggle a lot with that. Um, but what do you think about this? First of all, I think your rating just went down with that, with that comment. Uh, or up or whatever it is. Um, I agree with a lot of it, honestly, because to me, the one thing your church should be doing is taking care of their community, the poor. The church should be speaking out against racism and things like that, and you don't really see it. Um, the church shouldn't be demonizing Muslims. You know, that's not our job. Our job is to love everyone. Um, expelling immigrants, like sending people back to a dangerous situation where their child, them, their family could lose their lives, be turned into drug mules, prostitutes. Again, that rating's just... Well, we're already tanked, so just keep going. Um, I can't say that I'm okay with that. Now, does that mean, you know, I don't know what we need to do with immigration law, but you're sending people back to a death sentence in certain situations. Um, refusing refugees. That one I also agree with, but I have a caveat. It's kind of a thing of they're refusing refugees from certain areas out of fear that terrorism or whatever could happen. And that's a valid fear, but maybe the way we're handling it isn't proper, you know? Um, yeah, I think, so in the actual words that he said, I do not disagree because I do agree that it's impossible to be devoted to Jesus and do all of these things that he listed. My problem is when people, sometimes John Pavlovitz, bastardize scripture to fit their political agenda. I think that scripture stands alone. It doesn't need his blog post. It doesn't need his antics. It doesn't need his derogatory comments. And I think it's really bold of him to come out and say this while he questions the faith of other people so publicly. So, if you erase his name from this, if John Pavlovitz is not attached to this tweet, I agree. It's impossible to be devoted to Jesus 
and do these things. That does not mean, though, that this is about a political agenda. Mm. It doesn't mean, well, let all the refugees in, let all, you know, it doesn't mean all of that. There is still a biblical principle of law and order. Now, how that's defined, that's a whole different conversation. But I'm just really tired of people like Pavlovitz giving Christianity a bad name because of how much hatred and vitriol he spews towards other people who are believers. I'll add to that. So, I also agree with the statement, I don't know him. I don't know the things that he's done. I agree with the statement to a certain point, but also we cannot erase the fact that there are situations and not even situations, there there are kind of um, there are things surrounding each one of these topics. So it's not an easy thing of just saying, oh, let them all in, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's wrong to villainize people who have concern because some people aren't against immigration. They just want to make sure immigration happens in a proper way. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think back to 9-11 and the effect that had on our country in those days after it. And I've heard the saying before, I wish America could go back to 9-12, the day when every house had an American flag flying. Everyone spoke to everyone. Everyone showed concern for people they didn't know because they were shook to their core. And that day and the days that followed, people were totally fine with us locking down the borders and figuring out who's coming in, why they are here, and monitoring people that we were not sure about. Now, as time has passed and those wounds have started to cover, now we're on this boat of, well, everybody should be here. And they shouldn't. There are people who should not be here. Now, the overwhelming majority probably should be welcomed. But you still have to account for the ones who mean harm. And that's the thing. Like, statements like this make it seem like immigration is an easy topic. Yeah, if it was, it would have been solved by all your other people you thought were so smart. And no one is going to come up with a good solution for for immigration. Um, And I don't think, that being said, I don't think that the the country should be locked down and nobody should be able to come in. I actually think a majority of the people who I know, like, well, I don't know, but who would be great citizens who are running from a horrible place should be allowed in. But at the same time, I'm not going to villainize somebody who has concerns about that. Like him talking about villainizing and demonizing these groups of people, he's doing the same thing by making this statement. Well, and the one thing too. Not those groups of people, but other people. If you look at the first part of it. So he says, while refusing refugees and expelling immigrants. And then he puts a comma. But how do you put a period? That's one topic. But then he goes into demonizing Muslims, vilifying people of color, worshiping political power, and neglecting the poor. Those are two totally different topics. Having disagreements on immigration is one thing. That is as old as this country is and will be until we are long and gone. But the rest of that, demonizing Muslims, vilifying people of color, worshiping political power, and neglecting the poor, those are direct shots at people. And their integrity. 
that's not a partisan political issue anymore. You're calling out somebody's morality at that point. And you're, you're basically, you're giving an impasse. Either you believe in Jesus or you don't. That's what that statement does. You can't, you can't be devoted to Jesus because you, you did everything differently than what I said. It's not taken into account that Christians are still human beings. We are not perfect beings. We are flawed individuals trying to do better, following Jesus. You can't, you can't relegate somebody to evil just because they don't see things the way you see them. You know? I think I just get tired of this confusing, blurred line of politics and religion. Now, part of the show is that everything has a political undercurrent. But what I'm saying is calling into some calling into account and to question someone's faith. Like I said, the first two things are political issues. The rest of that, that's morality. That's I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, independent, I don't care what you are. Those things are wrong. How we handle immigration is a totally different subject. Yeah. And People like Pavlovitz like to throw all that together because it sounds so much better. Because here's the thing. You're going to get somebody's mind who's going to skip the first two things about immigration and go, well, I would never want to demonize a Muslim or vilify a person of color. And we should never neglect the poor. So I totally agree. And I'm going to retweet him. And that's why he does what he does. He's like the king of propaganda to me. But that's not scripture. And to me, that's what I say is bastardizing scripture. Well, the thing is, I don't know him, but I can say from looking at the first part of that sentence, it instantly says you either do these things or you don't. And if you don't, you don't follow Jesus. And that to me isn't right. You're minimizing people's concerns and worries. Because again, some people may be in the middle of the road. They want people to be able to immigrate here. But at the same time, they have concerns about people immigrating here that are harmful. For you to say, you know, this, expelling immigrants, you're not, you're not saying expelling good immigrants. You're not saying expelling, you're not specifying. You're just putting a blanket expel out there. So the moment they feel like certain immigrants that may be bad people need to be expelled, you're no longer a devoted follower of Jesus. And that to me, you, you, and we talk about this all the time, you cannot use definites <laughs> in conversations. You always say that. Because it's not right. <laughs> I can't say you're definitely a horrible person or a good person because everybody has a spectrum of things that they've done that are good, bad, and indifferent. So how can I instantly put you in a category based on one single thing? Because there's two or three things that could happen. You could, again, be middle of the road. You could be completely one way or the other. Or you could just be ignorant to the facts of a situation. So your ignorance automatically makes you evil because you don't believe this, but you don't really know anything about it. I'm just saying, don't try to box people into specific groups and categories based on very blanket statements. That's all I'm saying. I concur. Um, and with that, that's our top 10. And we have some really exciting guests coming on over the next few weeks that I'm super pumped to introduce you all to. But Aaron, you will always be my favorite guest. 
Well, I always enjoy doing this. I love, uh, love the flavor. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode of Tweets and Tonic, we would like to highlight the work of the Equal Justice Initiative. EJI is committed to ending mass incarceration and excessive punishment in the United States, to challenging racial and economic injustice, and to protecting basic human rights for the most vulnerable people in American society. EJI challenges poverty and racial injustice, advocates for equal treatment in the criminal justice system, and creates hope for marginalized communities. Founded in 1989 by Brian Stevenson, who is a widely acclaimed public interest lawyer and best-selling author of Just Mercy, EJI is a private 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides legal representation to people who have been illegally convicted, unfairly sentenced, or abused in state jails and prisons. They challenge the death penalty and excessive punishment and provide reentry assistance to formerly incarcerated people. EJI works with communities that have been marginalized by poverty and discouraged by unequal treatment. They are committed to changing the narrative about race in America. EJI produces groundbreaking reports, an award-winning wall calendar, and short films that explore our nation's history of racial injustice and recently launched an ambitious national effort to create new spaces, markers, and memorials that address the legacy of slavery, lynching, and racial segregation, which shape many issues today. EJI provides research and recommendations to assist advocates and policymakers in the critically important work of criminal justice reform. They publish reports, discussion guides, and other educational materials, and their staff conducts educational tours and presentations for thousands of students, teachers, faith leaders, professional associations, community groups, and international visitors every year in Montgomery, Alabama. To learn more about their organization, please visit EJI.org. C.S. Lewis said, I think each village was meant to feel pity for its own sick and poor whom it can help, and I doubt if it is the duty of any private person to fix his mind on ills which he cannot help. This may even become an escape from the works of charity we really can do to those we know. God may call any one of us to respond to some faraway problem or support those who have been so called. But we are finite, and He will not call us everywhere or to support every worthy cause. And real needs are not far from us. Thanks for listening today. We appreciate all your support, and we would love it if you would rate and review the podcast so that others can find us. Don't forget to tune in to the first episode of Last Call tomorrow. Cheers, y'all, and go do some good.